Thank you for tuning in to the Maximum Advisor podcast. If you're a growth-minded financial advisor looking to grow and scale your practice, you're in the right place. Your host, Chip Munn, brings tips and best practices based on his experiences and has guests from financial advisors to industry experts sharing wisdom with one another because we're better together. And now, Chip Munn. Welcome back to The Maximum Advisor. I'm your host, Chip Munn, and today I'm excited to be joined by my good friend, Tess Christensen. Tess is a learning and development consultant and a member of the faculty at the Fox School of Business at Temple University. Tess, welcome to the show. Hi, Chip. Thank you for having me. You are very welcome. Now, Tess, I've got to ask you, learning and development consultant. That's a hefty title. What, what does that mean? And how did you, uh, you get there from your start? Sure. Well, it, it really means that I'm a chief cat herder, Chip. I coordinate and organize lots of people and help them to learn how to learn better. I also tell people that in English, it means that I open up cows, cows standing for can of worms. And as a learning and development consultant, I actually help organizations figure out how to build quality training programs. How is that related to financial services? Well, before I moved into the consulting space, I worked for a number of different firms in financial services, mostly in the broker-dealer area, but I've also worked with some RIAs. And after spending about 20 years in that business, I decided to go out on my own because it gives me the ability to work with financial services firms, but also work with some nonprofit organizations, which is my favorite thing to work with. And then also allows me to teach at Fox School of Business. As you mentioned, I teach their MBA students in their capstone courses. So we spend a lot of time working on real life consulting engagements. That's awesome. Uh, You mentioned that you do things both inside and out of the financial services industry. What would you say is the biggest difference when we look at, you know, building a team or or really just, I guess, maybe even the businesses in general between what you find in financial services and some of the other areas that you consult? What makes us different? Well, I would kind of argue that I actually see a lot more similarities. What I mean by that is that across the board, and I actually thought I would see more differences when I went into the nonprofit world, What I see across the board is this notion that you really need to have the right people in the right place at the right time. And that may sound a little bit jaded, but I find that building a high-performing team is of utmost importance. So whether you're speaking of a team at an academic institution or a team at a nonprofit performing arts center or a team of financial advisors, you really need to make sure you have the right people on board. And you also really need to make sure that you have the right processes in place. And even when I see teams come together with the student teams that I mentioned, I'm talking about adult professionals of varying ages. They have about seven weeks to work as a newly formed team on a real-life consulting engagement. And the ones that are the most successful, even if they've never met each other before, have actually looked at each other's LinkedIn profiles over the course of the program that they've been going through at Fox, or they've spoken to each other. They've actively recruited the top talent across their cohort to make sure that they have the right people in the right room because they, as I mentioned, have about seven weeks to work on a very fast-paced project. So I know I turned the question back on you because you asked me about the differences, but I've seen more similarities in the importance of recruiting top talent. So you mentioned that 
having the right people in the right seats is of the utmost you know, importance. Why do you think that in today's financial services industry, and I don't think we're breaking new ground here, teams have been a thing for a long time, but why, why would you say, in your experience, teams are important or well-functioning teams are important? Well, obviously, you know, you need more people to to get the job done. And I also think what's really important in today's world is just to really think about diversity and being open to different skill sets. And I think this is extremely important. And I've seen this too in my work with financial services firms and having complementary skill sets. So, you know, having advisors that complement each other. And I feel like we all, I've been a hiring manager almost my entire life. I've been in management in some form or function for about 27 years. I feel like we all get really comfortable with hiring people that look like us. And I don't mean that look physically like us, but people that behave the same way or people that we could hang out with them and have a drink after work. And I think it's really important to get outside of that paradigm and to think about hiring different people that are going to make sure that they work together well and function well. And I know that, Chip, you've mentioned the, the rocket fuel book, I think it's called, when you have the visionary leader and then you have the implementer. I think you need that too on teams. So you need people with different skill sets and different personalities. For sure. I, well, one of the things, you know, early in my career, my partner, Scott Mitchell, and I have been together for 21 years. And, and what I learned real quick was that my skill set was not in, and, and my passion, honestly, wasn't in security selection and picking investments and, and really digging into what I typically kind of flippantly say, choosing between Coke and Pepsi. That was never my interest. It, it was, however, it was what Scott and his dad had done for years. And, and my passion and interest was in the planning side of things. And what we've always believed since then is that we're better together and that it's kind of like that old, I, I use the, and I'm dating myself, I'm sure the, the Wonder Twins, <laughs> you know, cartoon where they form of and, yes. you know, and, and between the two of us, we form, yeah, I always felt like a, a pretty good financial advisor between the two of us. It, it was, I'm a big believer you can't do everything and anymore. There's just, it seems to me like there's just too much to do. I mean, is that what you mean when you're referring to complementary skill sets? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, kind of, you know, adding those two people together to make the, the perfect advisor, but also looking at, you know, if you have different types of segments of your market that you're servicing. So if you have different types of clients or different sub-segments, you want to make sure that the advisors that you're working with are suited well to those individuals that you are speaking with on a daily basis. You know, if you're dealing with, let's say, surgeons, that's going to be a really different client base than, let's say, professors. So I think that you also need to make sure your team is built well so that you're serving your specific constituencies well. One of the things that you mentioned earlier was it's comfortable to hire people who I'll say look and feel like us. You know, we're, right. we're comfortable with them because they have the same kind of personality that that we do. And, and Lord knows, I mean, why wouldn't the world want more of me? I mean, it is kind of the the mentality I think sometimes that a lot of people have, what I have found, and I'm curious if you see it uh, a lot, is that for me, at least the kind of uh, personality that I have, if somebody's too similar to me, we can't work together in the same physical space that long because I, I'm a, and we maybe we'll get into some tools, but I'm a nine quick start on the Colby and there can't be but so many of us around. I mean, we will literally wear the rest of the team 
out. And so I think that, uh, you know, the other part of that is, I think on a Colby, I am a three in follow through. And so if everybody on my team were like me, we'd talk a great game up front and we wouldn't be able to fulfill on the back end because not because we don't want to or, or because we're not good enough or smart enough because it's not our natural inclination to be involved in that follow up and follow through. I change my oil what seems like about every 12,000 miles. And so, you know, if I were to try to do that in my business and I didn't have people who were good at other things, I mean, it's, it's easy to burn up the engine of your business. I absolutely agree. And this speaks a little bit to the tools. I know you've been talking a little bit about Colby, but, you know, when you think about Strengths Finder or managing to your strengths, I absolutely agree with that. I think that it's really important to figure out where people excel, what they like to do, and really make sure that you work with them to make sure they're using those skills. And I agree, if there were many chips in the office and only chips, things wouldn't get done because of the the lack of follow-through. And you need people with the, the implementation skills as well as the vision. And, you know, you're obviously a very visionary person. And that also leads me to something else that I just wanted to mention as far as teams that I think sometimes people may not think about. And you know that I'm very attentive to detail when, when need be, but then the devil is in the detail. So, you know, when you actually put together a strategic plan as a financial advisor or in any organization or an operational plan, it's really important to have someone that is playing that role of project manager, even if they are not, if that's not their title and if that's not their, in, that their total responsibility, but you really need that person to make sure that you're staying on track, following up with all the details, et cetera, et cetera. I often call it the gas and the brake. I know that that's a little bit different than the the details versus big picture, but it's the same kind of thing where I use the illustration of a car. If a car only had two gas pedals, it's real quick, you could end up in a, in a ditch. But if it just had two brakes, you'd never go anywhere. And I, right. I think that finding that blend and mix of, of talent and skills and predisposition. Again, we're just wired a certain way. Everybody is. And I think that to thine own self be true, you know, accept who you are and, and who other people, accept other people for who they are and how they are and find ways that you can work together. You mentioned the Strengths Finder. I've mentioned Colby. What, you, what are some of the, when you come into an organization, financial advisor, practice, or otherwise, what kinds of tools, how do you go about the process of determining whether or not folks are the right people, whether they're in the right seats? What's your kind of process or what, what's something that, that we could do in our practices? How do we begin to, to start sifting through that? Well, I don't actually have a specific toolkit, Chip, if you will, because a lot of the work that I do is just personal interviewing and speaking to individuals and organizations. So if I go into an organization and they need help with a strategic plan or they need a curriculum rebuilt or they want an assessment of all of the different roles in their organization, I spend a lot of time speaking to people and documenting their, their answers, ask a lot of behavioral questions, and then I kind of quantify that and turn that into data that I can give back to the client and say, well, these positions should be should be clumped in this way or your plan should look like this or these people should be in these roles and not in these. So I actually just do a lot of personal interviewing. I do think that if you were interviewing people to bring them onto your team, behavioral interview questions are extremely important and I could give you more information on resources there. There's a technique called the STAR technique. But I also think that the tools, you can use tools. I would say that it's important to 
ask the behavioral interview questions, and then follow up with some of those tools, whether it's Colby or StrengthsFinder or Myers-Briggs, to kind of affirm what you're thinking about a person. I wouldn't necessarily just use those tools. And I know there's some research and some scholars that say you shouldn't always go with your gut. Gut is not a way to make a decision. I would say, too, if you are going with your gut because you think it might be a bad hire or a bad fit, listen to that. And then maybe listen less if you're going for your gut when you meet someone right away and you think this person's fantastic. Because in some cases, that might just be someone that looks and thinks just like you. So I would be even more careful with the ones that you know you meet someone and instantly fall in love with them. You mentioned behavioral interview questions. Now, as, as somebody who I don't think, I know that I'm not allowed for sure to talk about compensation anymore. Our COO, Barry, took that away from me. He, he has told me I am no longer allowed to even go anywhere near discussion of compensation, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm probably not necessarily even the best person to interview because I love everybody, right? I'm, I can <laughs> see the, I mean, I am 100%, again, gas, rose-colored glasses. I can see the good, the good parts of, so I probably would have hired most anybody you know, I, I've ever interviewed. When you mention behavioral interview questions, for somebody like me, what, what's an example of that? So an example of that would be, let's say you were looking at hiring a new financial advisor onto your team. I would maybe say to that advisor, can you tell me about an experience where you had a really just disastrous interaction with a client and how you resolved it or how you didn't resolve it and what you learned from it? So it's a very open-ended question, but it's also specific. So a good, a good answer, a person that gives a good answer will be able to set up a situation for you tell you what happened, talk about the actions that they took, and then talk about the results. And they should be naturally able to do that. So that's an example of a behavioral interview question. Do you ever get used to that? Because for me, I've seen those kinds of questions before, and it seems to me, it just feels uncomfortable. For the person asking the question? Right. Yeah, I think that in, the, in your work, you know, where you're recruiting someone, I, I don't necessarily think it would be as clinical as how I just asked it. I think, you know, as a natural salesperson in your role, you can, in, you can work in those questions. You probably do that naturally when you're speaking to people, Chip. But it's just important to see if the person can tell a story because it's important to see how they can relate to clients and how they communicate. It's important for, you know, the individuals that you're bringing into your office to be able to have that critical thinking to be able to naturally, hopefully, be able to kind of tell you start to finish what happened. And it's almost like, it's almost like trying to get little case studies from the individuals that you're speaking with. So in a way, you are less interested, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, you're less interested in the answer than you are the fact that they can answer and have an ability to articulate and discuss whatever it is that you've asked about. That skill is as important as the content of the answer. Yes, I would agree with you that that skill is as important. And of course, depending on the answer it, or depending on the question, it would depend on how important the actual content was too. Yeah, I've made the mistake uh, of being interviewed before and being a little bit flippant in my answers. And, and so while I may have told a good story, you know, you could tell a good story and it'd be the wrong story. So that is definitely, both are certainly important, but it's interesting to me that part of that behavioral part that you're talking about is, is here and what they will answer, you know, so the, the story behind how they interacted with the client, but also the fact that they can carry on that kind of conversation in, in a question. I assume 
for somebody who's doing that for the first time or the first couple of times, as hokey as it might feel initially, can you just, I mean, am I right? You just read the question. You just read it. You certainly could, you know, and there's so many questions. I'm sure online there's lots of, I know there's lots of behavioral questions. So you literally could just do a Google search and come up with a list of behavioral questions and make them your own. Weave them into a conversation over a drink you might be having with a potential recruit or something like that. Or practice the question with someone that you know that doesn't mind being a guinea pig for your questions. And, you know, the importance of, in my opinion, the importance of behavioral interviewing is that I'm sure we've all had experiences where we interviewed someone that looked great on paper or great in the interview. And then they came into the job and they just weren't the same person. And it's kind of like, well, wait, I hired you. Who is this person sitting at the desk? So the more information you can get by asking behavioral interview questions, the better. And I feel that you can generally tell when people are sincere as well. And so I think it's important just to try and get as much meat as you can from their answers to determine whether or not the person is an, a viable option. So you mentioned trust in your gut. Do you believe in the, the saying, the slow to hire, quick to fire, or is that kind of, of bogus? I agree with slow to hire, quick to fire, and I have been burned a couple of times when I wasn't quick to fire. And I personally, I am all for listening trying to sort something out initially, but when you start to realize that something is not wrong, I mean, it just doesn't make sense to keep them around anymore. Somebody once told me, you, you know, grown people don't change. I think that was our friend Gary, and I had uh, a conversation <laughs> with somebody recently, and they said, wine gets better with age, people don't. And I was like, man, that is... Uh, That's pretty... Yeah, it, well, it's, it's a new way to look at an old subject. You know, kind of the, you can't teach an old dog's new tricks. You know, wine gets better with age, people don't. So they are who they are and, and you have to accept that. When you're looking at building a team or when you're coming in to, to have a conversation with a team, how important is or, or what role does leadership play or, or the leader specifically? Well, from a leadership perspective, I think that as a leader, I think you need to understand your style. And I think that does come into play if you're bringing people into a team. You know, you need to make sure that the leadership style that you have as a leader and that the style that the person you're bringing on, that those mesh. So that that plays into culture too, right? But I really do think that the leadership style is, it's important to make sure that they match. So for example, most people are not going to say, I really like command and control. That's that's what I want. But if you are that way, make sure the person coming onto the team is someone that someone would be okay with that. I personally agree with or espouse something called servant leadership. And that really is creating an environment in which people have the tools that they need to do their jobs. So not necessarily giving them, not sugarcoating anything, but making sure that they have what they need and that they're not being micromanaged. And I have found in my career that that has been the most helpful. I don't really believe that you can motivate people. I believe that they motivate themselves. And I think that people can be more motivated, the more comfortable environment in which they have to work. So I don't know if that exactly answered your question. Well, uh, yeah, I think it did. And, and, you know, they say, and I guess as a leader, one of the things that, that we have to be mindful of is people have a choice in where they mm -hmm. work. You're talking about micromanagement. And I've read several articles that say, you know, people don't leave jobs, they leave bosses. So when you think about that uh, and, and you look at, at 
the various teams that you've come in to work with, what would you say are some of the kind of common mistakes that you see that people make? I recently, well, not recently, probably about a year ago, read an article in the Wall Street Journal about this notion of the humility index. And I hadn't really thought about it, but there's quite a bit of research that has been done that shows that humble leaders actually experience less absenteeism and less turnover with their employees than leaders that are not so humble. So I'm sure we've all worked with or perhaps seen leaders that are idea stealers, right? So someone on the team has a great idea and the boss steals it and takes it as their own. I mean, that happens a lot, right? But I think that that is a mistake. So I think this kind of ties in with this notion of servant leadership and being humble, not being walked all over, but just being humble actually is, is a great way to go. So I think some, from a mistake perspective, I think leaders sometimes, you know, take the thought that they are in charge and perhaps have some cockiness there that doesn't necessarily create that like environment in which people can motivate themselves. In fact, speaking about tools, the Hogan assessment team, the Hogan assessment group has actually added, I think at the beginning of this year, they were adding about 20 questions around humility to one of their tests to actually kind of measure how much humility potential leaders had. Yeah, I think that unfortunately, I, I don't believe you can fake humility. You can certainly cultivate it, but I don't think that you know everybody knows the humble brag, right? I mean, it, it's right. not. <laughs> it, you, you have to when you talk about humility, it, it's not pretending like you're humble. It, it's about the fact that that you're willing to share the credit, you know, that you and and take the blame. I think that that's an area where, yeah, sometimes we, we fall short. I mean, you know, again, there's so many hokey kind of say the, the, there's no I in team, uh, but it's just true. And again, kind of my, uh, one, one of my mantras is better together. I, I just believe it. And I think that that bleeds into whether you are a servant leader, whether you are, are humble or not, it bleeds into your culture, whether you mean for it to or not. It doesn't matter if you put a phrase on the wall in your conference room. If you don't believe it, everybody knows it. When you, you think about teams that are getting it right, what does a good team look like? What does it mean if, if I was to look at it and I wanted to know what success looks like? How, how would I know it if I saw it? So I will, I'm thinking of a team that I'm based in Philadelphia, and I'm thinking of a team that I worked with several years ago, and they just seem to have, they just seem to do everything right. I mean, perfection. And I would have to say that it started with the founder just being one of the people, it was the kind of person that you met that just, you just knew this person was a person of true integrity. And so that was the foundation, I think, and ethics. I think that was the foundation for the whole team, and you could just see that. So I would say that was just, like I said, you could just feel that coming from this group. Then complementary skill sets. So the advisors, there were a few advisors, a couple advisors when I worked with this team and they were, they were different. They had different skills. One was an attorney, one was not. And then I also think that they had their processes down to a science. So all of their client segmentation, how that linked up with the CRM, everyone answered the phone the same way. You just kind of got that feeling of consistency and brand. So I know I just threw a lot of answers into your question, 
but hopefully that helps. And then going back to a project manager, you know, they had a project manager that, that was awesome, that knew exactly when things need to be done. The process, I think, I haven't talked a lot about that, or the practice management is so important as well. And trying to get all of those things together is definitely, Chip, I think this is your phrase, the art is an art and a science when it comes to team building. Yeah, for sure. Well, and so the, but the science part, I'm, I'm interested in, let's drill down a little bit. You said earlier that the processes were as important as the people. Those were the two things that you said, mm-hmm. you know, you have to have good people, but you also have to have your processes down. And then in that last question, you mentioned that the team who's doing it right, it was evident that they had their processes down to a science. What is, uh, and, and I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, what's more important to have right first, the people or the processes? Well, I'm going to just <laughs> throw a wrench in your question again, Chip. Sorry. There's one more P, and I think that's plan. So I think it all starts with a strategic plan. So without, and you know this is my background and kind of what where I consult, but I think without having that strategic plan, you can't really even figure out the process and the people. So I didn't, I kind of cheated there. I didn't answer the question, but I think the plan is the most important thing. So, and by plan, I mean going back to the basics and some of the academics with a vision, a mission, and then, okay, what does that plan look like? One, three, five years, and then how are we going to execute on it? Now, all of us probably don't have the luxury of going A to Z by, okay, we're going to get a plan, then we're going to put the vision mission, then we're going to figure out the perfect people and the perfect process. So the challenge is you probably already have a team. And you need to figure out how to navigate the people and the processes that you already have in place. So I would say the plan is important. And then working with the people and the processes and seeing, again, some of those difficult questions, who works, who doesn't. So when you go through that type of a process and create the plan, sometimes you won't end up with the same people. And obviously, the processes might have to change or be re-engineered from what you originally started with. So if uh, I were a, a team of three or four People, I'm, I'm leading a team of three or four people, and I were to engage with you or somebody like you, and, and I follow your advice. I, the first thing is the plan, and, and we come up with a plan for with my vision and mission and core focus and, and those kinds of things. What do we do if we realize that, at least in their current state, one or two of the team members that I have don't fit? What do I do? Well, that's a difficult question, and it would be a difficult question in, in the real world, too. But I would say, you know, when I've been in this, been in, had this experience managing large corporate functions, I, you know, my first step is usually to see, are there, and again, this goes to managing strengths, are there other areas where this, where this person might work out? And so that could be part of it. Change a job description, move some things around, reallocate responsibilities. Worst case scenario is that this person doesn't belong in the new organization. And unfortunately, sometimes that happens. I mean, this is business and sometimes, unfortunately, that is the ultimate result. But I always strive to figure out if there's another way to make it work, but sometimes it just doesn't. I actually heard a story about uh, a company, and I thought it was a brilliant idea that that brought all of the team members into a conference room, and everybody had post-it notes, and they would take all of the parts of their job they didn't like, and they would write. Everybody would write. I don't remember if it was a certain number, or you could write as many as you want to. Some people would need a whole stack of the really big post-it notes, but. <laughs> And they had them write it on a post-it note and stick it on the wall. And then 
uh, everybody would sit down and they, they read through everything. And then they gave people the opportunity to go and find things that they really liked on the wall and take them down. And what this particular company found was that by, like you said, I, I thought it was a good visual way for them to say, all right, hey, Jim doesn't like doing these things, but Susan does. And they realigned the job responsibilities with the team that they had. And people were able, they were a lot more productive because they were able to kind of jettison things that they didn't enjoy or they didn't feel like they were good at. And somebody else you know, w- was happy to have it. And they were then able to go back and pick up something maybe that somebody else didn't like. It was really kind of in their wheelhouse. And so I thought that was a good kind of visual way of of taking some of that inventory. Yeah, I like that. And you're right. Absolutely right. It's an inventory. Yes. And that's something that can also be part of that strategic planning process. When you speak to processes, you know, you just kind of talked about the people part of it. But one of the things that is just painful to do, but when you get into the nitty gritty of the strategic plan and how are you going to deliver on it, sometimes you need to just take a task inventory, stick it all in a spreadsheet. And, and again, like you said, to figure out who should be doing what. You mentioned a couple of times, Tess, the, the term project manager. It, it seems to me like kind of in, in what you're saying, that's a really important role. Is that a separate role from everything else or could it be kind of a part-time component of, of what somebody's doing? How does that figure into the mix? Sure. And I obviously, if you had a team of three or four, you probably wouldn't have, you know, the need to have a full-time project manager. It can absolutely be someone who is doing another job, but that part of their job is, you know, they keep track in a spreadsheet or a Word document or whatever you use of the projects that are happening and maybe convene with with the entire team regularly, maybe not weekly, maybe monthly, maybe quarterly. But so it could be a, a dedicated person depending on how big your organization was or it could be a part-time. The important thing is to make sure you have someone that's, and this might sound obvious, but sometimes it's not, someone that has that really keen attention to detail and perhaps has project management experience. I mentioned earlier in the call when I bring together these MBA students and they have seven weeks to deliver a real life consulting project to a client. And there's usually five or six students. That first meeting I have with the students, I say, if anyone has a project management certification or experience in the project management, there's no voting, you're the project manager. Now, I have a little bit more of luxury just to say that because they only have seven weeks in which to complete an entire semester's worth of work and client engagement. But I think the key thing here is if you see someone on your team that has those types of tendencies or has education in project management or likes it, try and just assign that person (laughs) the responsibility of being a project manager. At least that's my recommendation. And if somebody does take the Colby and they are a nine quick start, they should not be (laughs) the project manager. Um, (laughs) You should not be the project manager. (laughs) I could could not. I'm good at a lot of things. That is not one of them. I think it's interesting, though, that now you all are teaching this to folks. And I guess you said it's more executive education or or, or a little higher, but you know, for a long time in school, what we call in the business world collaboration, they call cheating. And so, you know, I think right. that it's great that that you all are, are teaching that kind of in the university setting, because I do think it's it's really incredibly important when folks get out into the real world. Absolutely, yes, it's a really cool course. Actually, it's very experiential and competency based, and that's why we do it that way because. We want people to be able to hit the ground running when they leave or get ready for the next promotion. A lot of our our students, you know, are not just recent graduates. So, Tess, if you were to give one piece of advice, you know, we're an action-oriented podcast. It's important to me. 
where we can, that we give our listeners something that they can do today to make their practice better in terms of, of looking at kind of some of the things that we've talked about in either building or evaluating a team. What, what would be your one suggestion of a takeaway item, an action item that they could do? Well, this may seem, getting, may seem like I'm getting a little back to the basics, and we haven't talked about this a lot, but I'm a big advocate of having regular, regular conversations with the people that you work with that are on the team, whether that's someone that's sitting next to you, you know, helping you with something, whether that's a, you know, a sales assistant, that, and I'm not sure what we call sales assistants anymore, that's, that's reporting to an advisor or an operations manager that's reporting to someone who is the president of a firm. You hear a lot about performance management and performance appraisals. I'm not a fan of either of those phrases because I think they kind of become these really long, drawn-out processes where you have to fill out forms and the person on the other end, on the receiving end of the performance appraisal, doesn't necessarily enjoy it. Neither does the person giving it. So I would just say this is simple. Have regular conversations with the people that you work with as it relates to goals and progress that's being made with the organization. It's really important. And, you know, try not to put it off. Uh, you know, if it's once a month or once a week, if it's 20 minutes, if it's a cup of coffee, if it's a just let's chat, just talk about where you're going as an organization and whether or not you're moving forward with those goals. Hopefully they are attached to some sort of strategic plan. And if not, I mean, it gives you a pretty clear indication if somebody's goals and their progress is in a different direction than where you're headed as a company or as a practice. What better way to, to find that out and be able to either kind of course correct or you know, help somebody else find a way to live their best life somewhere different. And right. I, I think that that's sometimes not hiring people or helping people trans. I don't think we have to just go out and terminate. We can we can actually help folks find their next best thing. Nobody wants to be in a situation where things are imperfect, but also kind of like any relationship, uh, sometimes you just don't know what you don't know. And if we just take time to have those conversations, we can certainly make things an awful lot better with our team. I, I think that one thing we didn't press down on too hard is the importance of communication. And so maybe we could do that in a different episode, but it certainly is, it's a big deal and one that, that we need to be focused on. Uh, Tess, I want to thank you. I, I think that uh, we've, I've, I've learned a lot. I think that it's an important subject as we continue to move along in this industry and the importance of teams to be able to hear folks like you on how we can best build and sustain those. So I, I want to thank you for coming on the show. If somebody were to hear this and had an interest, had a question, is there a good way for folks to reach out and get in touch with you? Absolutely. And thank you very much for having me, Chip. They could just reach out to me on my, well, I'm on LinkedIn, so Tess Christensen, and you could also just email me. It's my name at gmail.com. So that would be fine. Awesome. Well, again, Tess, thank you for coming on. It is, uh, it was a pleasure and uh, hopefully we'll do it again real soon. Thank you, Chip. And everybody, we will be back at you uh, in a couple of weeks. We are really grateful that you would spend the time to listen. Hope that you're learning uh, something important and something that today you can take and and build the team in your practice. If you would, and you do enjoy the show, please stop off uh, wherever you listen to your podcast. Give us a rating or review. It helps us to reach more people and build our community. Also, jump over into the Facebook group if you have a question or if you have a guest that you'd like to hear from, somebody you'd suggest. Join us in the Facebook group. I check it in with it every day. 
and uh, I'm happy to engage with you there. I look forward to be back at you again real soon. To download what we believe is the single most important marketing, selling, and positioning tool for your practice, go to MaximumAdvisor.com slash scorecard now. Subscribe to this show anywhere you listen to podcasts or at MaximumAdvisor.com.